I'm Mike TV and this is Hesitation Cuts. In this episode, we're going to be discussing a very turbulent but also transformative time in my life. A, a period that laid the germinating seeds for what eventually explicated so much of my personal philosophy on being independent, going against the grain, trying things that have never been done before, you know, just pushing boundaries and maintaining the pioneering spirit. Let's take the Wayback Machine to 1991, and I am freshly graduated from high school. I had attended Palm Desert High, which was a relatively newly constructed school in my hometown of Palm Desert. And I've just recently formed a new band with my close friends in the desert, and we're called the Spriggans. Actually, before we get into that, let me just give you the lay of the land, because Palm Desert and the entire Coachella Valley, for that matter, is a very unusual place, particularly in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, the desert, as many people know, is predominantly a retirement community with a heavy, heavy emphasis on golf. There are, uh, I think, 125 golf courses in the desert right now, here in 2023. And this is a valley that is like 45 miles long. So that's what, al almost three golf courses per mile? Now, back in the 80s, there was obviously a smaller number, but there were, I think there were 33 brand new courses built from 1980 to 1990. So golf was huge, seriously, just huge. I mean, when I was a kid, Palm Desert had legislation that legal golf carts on city streets, so skateboards weren't allowed, but golf carts were. <laughs> but for all the concessions that Palm Desert gave to golfers and to retirees and to their wealthy residents, they did the exact opposite for minors under the age of 18. We had no places we were welcome. Not, not if we didn't have money. Which in a town of 30,000 people, there weren't a lot of jobs for the under 18 set. So if you were poor, which I was, you were fucked. So I started working at Domino's Pizza when I was 12 years old. And I'll talk about that in a future episode. But we were not allowed to congregate outside our homes without money in our pockets. If we did, we were likely to be harassed. We could hang out in the mall, like the Yellow Brick Road, which was the mall arcade or the food court. But with no money, we were technically loitering. And all it took was mall security to decide that we weren't a welcome and then we would be booted. Uh, we couldn't congregate at parks or swimming pools or, or even the outside amphitheater in the mall without catching the stink eye from someone. If we were somewhere without adult supervision, we would be, and often were, harassed by adults, by police, by country club security, by, by retirees and homeowners, you know, like basically everyone, everyone that wasn't a kid. So we did what kids do, particularly those of us who were latchkey kids. Those of us who had three, four, five hours of unsupervised running around town getting into all sorts of trouble that kids get into. For instance, we built a half pipe at my next door neighbor's house, the Dean's, with wood that was mostly stolen from construction sites around town. We stole lumber, we stole masonite, the whole shebang. And because my house was situated right next to the only full-sized half pipe in the desert, and because our parents worked till six and sometimes later, our little circle, the street where I lived, it was a nexus of like youthful skate punk chaos. There were regularly 30 kids of all ages just skating and hanging out, you know, just being kids.
crazy thing was, by not giving us places to congregate, by not catering to us at all in any way, the district just became a little incubator of industrious creativity for a lot of us. We just started making our own entertainment. Oh, there's nothing to do and we're still stuck at home And there's nothing to watch, we want somewhere to go And we don't got no cash, no, we got none at all So there's nothing to do, so we stare at the wall And like it's pretty shitty when there's nothing on TV No money in our pockets and there's not enough to drink Every day is just the same as day before We're bored, we're bored We're effing bored That's the thing, right? That's what they wanted of us, to surrender, to acquiesce, to submit to our elders, our superiors, our betters. And we were like, fuck no. Hey, I'm Mike TV, and this is episode three of season two of Hesitation Cuts, the show where we douse ourselves in gasoline, light a cigarette, hug our neighbors, and bask in the warm light of friendship. Today's episode is about generators, rock and roll, and the places kids go when there is nowhere for them to go. Now, music has always been a way for kids to give the stiff middle finger to parents, authorities, the powers that be. I mean, look at the 1920s, right? And the flappers and the jazz and all the adventures that those folks had. When you're a youth, music can give you a sense of identity, a tribe, and also a connection to something larger, more visceral, more holistic than the quotidian perspectives of our parents and our teachers and, uh, and our authorities and, and even our square peers. And for me and my friends, music defined who we were. It was, at least in my estimation, one of the two biggest single identifiers of my personal community. Now, one was role-playing games, which I will talk about in a future episode, but the other was music. Actually, there were three, because all of us, all my close friends, we were all part of a martial art as well called Kronkitaquan. But from the music perspective, I was firmly of the punk and grunge and college rock tribe. And now, yes, that's right, college rock, because I am of the age, before it was indie rock, it was actually called college rock. So by the time I was a senior in high school, I had my own apartment. I was living on my own. My mom kicked me out at 16. My dad lived in Indio, about 10 miles east of Palm Desert. And while we were living together, he would leave me waiting for hours and hours after I got out of work. Like I would get out at eight, he'd pick me up at 11. I'd get out at six, he'd pick me up at 11.30. So when one of my coworkers at the ice rink at the Palm Desert Town Center, Pat Sheehy, had a room open up in his two bedroom place, I moved in. I think it was in September of my senior year, and it was $250 a month, which, alas, along with utilities, was basically all the money I made. So thank God for my friends. One friend in particular, Mike Clausen, whose family were Alaskan fishermen, and Mike would work with them during the summers, and he would make pretty substantial money. And thank God for his generosity, because I went to so many shows on his dime. Nirvana, Pavement, Dinosaur Jr., the Afghan Wigs, show after show after show, because all of my money was tied up in keeping myself housed and fed. But, but I and my friends, we all went as a group. And yes, I was the charity case, 
but you know, but thank God for Mike because I, I will cherish forever, cherish those rock shows. And there was something magical in those shows. Even waiting in line was a tribal event. The smell of the patchouli and the cigarettes and the body odor, the band t-shirts, the random meeting of a friend from our high school, even though we lived two hours away from Los Angeles, all of it only served to cement the idea that this was a magical, powerful, yet also ephemeral moment that I just clung to with all the fervor and passion of a religious gathering. And so one day, as I was driving with my buddy, Eric Altenburn, in his red pickup truck, I proposed the idea of starting a band. Like, what if Eric played bass, and I sang, and our buddy Pat could play guitar, and Rick could play drums? I mean, we had the players. Why forever sit on the sidelines? Like, like why be part of the holy sea of rock and roll when we could instead be clergy? And, and everyone agreed. And so he wrote our very first song. Pat was on guitar, and we were over at Eric's house, and I was extemporizing lyrics. And, uh, and the first lyrics we ever came up with were... Tammy is neat, so I killed her. She was sweet, but I wanted to fill it with mud and stuff and keep her in my room. And, and with that, the Spriggans were born. Well, I mean, not, not immediately, because, of course, we went through the compulsory hundred band name changes. Uh, Julius Caesar in the Slam Machine, Oodles of Poodles, Mikey Mike in the Funky Fucks, the Neo Yahtzee Party. So many just completely absurd, but for my money, like hilarious names. But ultimately, we settled on the Spriggans, which was an homage to the Pixies. And we wrote and wrote and wrote and we practiced and we played and eventually we started getting offered gigs. But they weren't nightclub shows because there was no place in the desert for a teenage band to play but the desert itself. We like beer and we like booze and we don't follow any rules and we don't like you, we don't like them, we don't like the things that happen. Oh, let's go. played in the middle of the desert. Like take a dirt road down another dirt road, turn left at a sign, take another dirt road, and there you are, surrounded by sand dunes, powered by generators, lit by bonfires, and joined by 200 teenagers from across the valley. We're so sick of doing shit. We think we're gonna simply quit. Oh, we don't like you anyway. We're gonna disappear someday. We like beer and we like booze and we don't follow any rules and we don't like you, we don't like them, we don't like the things that happen, oh, let's go. Shows happened in Indio Hills, the Nude Bowl, which was an old abandoned nudist colony in Palm Springs, a place called the Vineyard. I mean, lots of shows in just random desert spots, or at least they felt random to me, but they were just empty lots or abandoned ruins where Mario Lolly of Fatso Jetson and sort of quartet fame would set up his generator and then bands would just rock. We like beer and we like booze and we don't follow any rules and we don't like you, we don't like them, we don't like the things that happen, oh, let's go. Have fun. 
So maybe you will find this just as fascinating as I do, but my grade, the class of 1991 out of Palm Desert High School, and the grade that preceded me, 1990, and the grade after me, 1992, there were an inordinate amount of musicians that have gone on to make some sort of mark on the world. I'm just gonna give you a tiny, tiny list, but I think you'll see it's pretty compelling. So there's Tony Tornay, he was in my class, and he plays drums for the above-mentioned Fatso Jetson. Then there's Josh Homme, Brant Bjork, John Garcia, Chris Cockerell, Nick Oliveri that were originally Cats and Jammer, and they became Sons of Caius, and eventually Caius. And they were one of the bigger bands in the desert, and all of them have gone off to do other things, other musical things. And of course, Josh went on to form Queens of the Stone Age. There's Ahmad Wasif and the Gurgis brothers, John and Brian. I loved Ahmad and Brian's band, Lowercase. There's Beth Arzi, who was originally with John in a band called Aberdeen, but then she moved to the UK and performed with and continues to perform with the Luxembourg Signal and Jetstream Pony. There's Jesse Hughes, who teamed up with Josh Homme to form the Eagles of Death Metal. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. I mean, my, my bandmate Pat Flores, who after he left Get Set Go, helped found Merle Jagger, an LA country bluegrass guitar virtuoso outfit. Rick Vegas, after leaving Get Set Go, played drums for the Randys. I mean, just bands and bands, scores and scores of musicians that are still putting out records and playing shows. So many musicians, so much music from a town at the time that we graduated was like 30,000 people. You know, I mean, I, I think that the whole school was like 1,500 kids. And I do think it was due to this weird alchemical mix of rich kids and poor kids growing up in an environment that was hostile to the youth, where there was pretty significant amounts of neglect. I definitely remember lots of kids congregating at homes and in parks and in country clubs, ice blocking, which is you'd buy a big block of ice and put a towel over it, and then you'd ride it like a sled down the grassy slopes of the golf courses. We had a big wash that ran the entire length of Palm Desert, and there were lots of golf courses that just covered that wash up in grass. But I recall big groups of kids, a lot of hanging out, with very little adult supervision. I mean, there were adults because we had the 20-somethings and the late teens, but they were effectively kids, you know? So there were very little adult involvement, much less supervision. And it was crazy because regardless of your family's economic status, and obviously we, my family, were pretty poor, but there were lots of latchkey kids, you know? I mean, some kids drove Mercedes, some kids rode bikes, but regardless of what money your family had, it still didn't prevent you from coming home to an empty house. And I had friends whose parents would leave for months at a time, so their houses became the places we all hung out. And it's crazy because when you're in the company of friends and there is no real wealth of life experience to draw from, and you're beginning to explore the boundaries of what is and what isn't possible, it's pretty darn easy to engage in dangerous behaviors.
And yes, we lost a few friends to the chaos of adolescence, heartbreaking though it was, but it's amazing to me to see how many of us actually survived and continued to do all right. We're gonna smoke them out as we ride a tiger and we'll know no doubt as we ride the tiger. Our growing up experience was unique. I just think that at this time, in this place, it created a lot of amazing musicians. And because we had no place to play, we turned to the very desert itself. We're gonna ride a tiger. We're gonna ride a tiger. We're gonna ride the tiger. We're gonna ride a tiger. I wanna tell you a story that I think is emblematic of growing up in the desert and our relationships with authorities of every stripe. It starts with me and my friends, Jesse Hughes, who later formed Eagles of Death Metal, and my buddy, Charlie Barrett, who not much later formed a band with his friends called Asphalt Soul. And I think I was maybe 16 or 17, and Jesse was 17 or 18, and Charlie was, I think, 15 or 16, and we were skating in a cemented overwash. And I was on my skateboard, Charlie on his rollerblades, and Jesse was just hanging out with us. And we noticed that there was a patrol car watching us as we were goofing off. Now this part of the wash was pretty far from any residential areas except for a nearby retirement community and we're not causing trouble, we're just skating. Even so, like I said, nothing kids did in the desert was actually allowed and we were always treated as if we were criminals just about to perpetrate crimes, you know? Doing anything was only done on the forbearance of our masters. And, and that's really how it felt. And of course, this just engendered in all of my friends and contemporaries a streak of defiance. You know, being treated as a hooligan just because we were kids really began to pall. So we see this police officer who is part of the Riverside County Sheriff's Department just watching us. So I suggest that we play a game of casual cat and mouse, which is something I used to do back in the Bay Area in Benicia when I was a kid. There was a lot of new developments being built back then and they had their own security guards. And of course, as kids, we would play amongst the construction and then we would flee the security, all of the kids on their bikes during the escape sequences in, in the movie E.T. And even if we were caught, you know, they would just admonish us and send us on our way and it was always fun. So I suggested that we do something similar. So we move to a part of the wash where the officer can't see us and then we scramble and we walk in a different direction until of course we see the officer cruise by us, eyeballing us. You know, he has found us again and so we change direction again and we cut through the retirement community, which is not walled off. They have walking paths throughout and there's not a single no trespassing sign. So as we're leaving the community, walking down a driveway kind of towards the Palm Desert Mall, the officer comes screeching up, slamming on his brakes, lights flashing. So stupidly, 
We panic and just bolt. I head one way, Jesse heads another, Charlie, still on his rollerblades, heads another. And I end up hunkering down in a bush about 100 yards away. Now, of course, it was stupid of us to run. But at the same time, when a cop car rushes up on you going 15 miles an hour, slams on his brakes, lights flashing, it's going to provoke a fear response. And we were young, full of vim, and so we just booked. Now, of course, the officer that finds me in the bush was this notorious cop known as Officer Woody. I think he eventually transferred to the high school uh, as the on-campus officer, but I don't remember th if this was before or after that. But this man, this guy draws his gun, no joke, draws his weapon, runs up to me, holds the gun to my head, and forcibly pulls me out of the bushes. He then drags me to his car and then tells me to put both my hands on the scorching hot hood in 100 plus degree summer weather. So, you know, I oblige. And in short order, they bring up Jesse and, and they do the same with him. And while this is happening, more cop cars arrive with more officers. So we ask, why were we being followed? And why now have we been stopped? To which the cops reply, someone was breaking into cars in the neighborhood that matched our description. Which is complete and utter horseshit. Oh yes, three young guys that look like us on skateboards and rollerblades hanging out in the wash were also stealing from cars. Fucking horseshit. And so they hold us there with our hands hovering above the scorching hot hood of a cop car for about 20 minutes until they bring in Charlie, who is hidden in the local Little Caesars where some friends of ours worked. So they find him in his socks because he's handed off his rollerblades to some friends and the cops handcuff him. And when he arrives, he's literally perp walked out of the car. Like he struggles, like get your hands off me as they pull him out. Like such a badass, looking so tough in his socks. I still laugh at that memory. Now at this point, there are nine police officers and five cop cars. It was as big a to-do as I've ever seen in Palm Desert. But of course, we've done nothing wrong. We've committed no crimes. I mean, yes, it was stupid to do the whole cat and mouse thing, but at the same time, why was this cop shadowing us? We were just skating. You mean to tell me there's no crime happening in Palm Desert? <laughs> and of course the answer is no, there's not. Of course there's not. And, and these cops get to flex. And so flex they're going to do. And so because we've done nothing wrong, eventually the cops disperse and Officer Woody drives us back to my house, where when we arrive, he walks Jesse and I up to the front door and then he threatens us with physical harm if we ever do anything like that again. He doesn't explain what we've done. He just threatens to beat us up if we do it again. <laughs> and then he leaves to take Charlie home, who's still sitting in the back of the cop car. And of course, a few blocks away, he just kicks Charlie out of the car, who then walks back to my place. Now, it was this casual show of force, the gun pointed at my head, the threat of physical harm, the forcing our hands onto the hood. It was these things that I take significant umbrage with. Yes, we should not have run. But as I said, he came in as if in hot pursuit, which is a technical police term where the police may pursue a fleeing suspect, issuing warrants even, if they believe they have probable cause to make an arrest. Although what gave this fellow the impression that there was probable cause is completely beyond me. We were just walking around. I was carrying a skateboard. Otherwise, we had nothing else on us. So I say this because this is a very choice example of the sort of atmosphere we were living under at this time in the desert. And the great thing is, when you subject the youth to this sort of persistent powerlessness and for lack of a better word, indifferent oppression, they find ways to fight back. And a lot of us fought back with music.
wait on the kids and the kids will be back They're due to launch another counterattack Enroll the tanks, so reload the guns Everybody's beating down on everyone I think you, you could be a star Just do the unthinkable while the cameras are on Life is cheap, we're all practically dead They're coming for us, so off with their heads They're coming for us, so off with their heads They're coming for us Jesus is queen, it's the goddamn weirdest thing that I've ever seen Blood is cheaper than water for sure And it spills so black and it feels so warm I thank you, you could save us all If only you were 300 feet tall But no matter, it's already been said They're coming for us, so off with their heads they're coming for us So off with their heads They're coming for us So off with their Heads Chop, chop, chop Choppy, chop, chop Chop, chop, choppy, 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 chop, chop, chop Chop, chop, chop Choppy, chop, chop Chop, chop, chop I don't like bullies. I learned this in the desert, and I don't really have the same sort of self-preservation instincts that most people do, so I will often stand up to people I really have no business standing up to. But someone has to say, hey, fuckers, this isn't right. Beat on the kids, and the kids will be back. The doo-doo launch another counterattack. Enroll the tanks, so reload the guns. Everybody's beating down on everyone. I thank you, you could be a star Just do the unthinkable while the cameras are on Life is cheap, we're all practically dead They're coming for us, so off with their heads They're coming for us So off with their heads They're coming for us So off with their heads Growing up poor in a small community with so much wealth and so much privilege really impacted me in a way that I didn't fully understand until decades later. Actually, 
I don't know if I do fully understand it. My perspective is always changing as I ruminate on it, but I do feel in my heart of hearts that there are significant injustices that need to be righted. And I know I've talked about it in this podcast about the homeless, the mentally damaged, the invisible people, which I didn't see a whole heck of a lot of until I arrived in Los Angeles, but my sense that this place, this reality, this hunk of rock that is hurtling through space with about seven billion great apes clinging to it is very broken and tilted very much in favor of the selfish, the self-serving, the self-entitled, the people who don't necessarily contribute, but instead exploit the contributions of the contributors. And all of these perspectives, things that I've written about song over song, decade over decade, all of it was incubated in the little town of Palm Desert. This weird confluence of the ultra-wealthy, the retired, the people that service them, the people that build their houses and expand their communities. And yes, there were significant other outside factors that I think propelled my contemporaries in Palm Desert into music. It was just as sub-pop and the Seattle scene was in its ascendancy. Nirvana's first album, Bleach, was out. Mudhoney was a darling of the college rock world. There was a vibrancy and tribal quality to people's love of music that I think propelled a lot of us to want to contribute. But at least for me, it didn't feel like the community was looking to reach very far outside of the desert. It was just our world, a world surrounded by mountains. And it was a world that everyone seemed to return to. People would leave, go to LA for a little while, or college, or New York, and then over time, you'd find that they had returned. There's something about the desert that, for me, simultaneously feels like home, will always feel like home, yet also is the most foreign and weird and damaged place ever, and that is constantly reiterated every single time I go back and spend even a, a, a small chunk of time there. I never fully belonged. I don't think I ever will. Certainly, I don't make enough money to be able to enjoy the desert the way most of its residents do. I mean, I have once on Universal's Dime, a few times with friends, but it always feels like the place I knew has been replaced by something very similar, but cut from very different cloth. But even so, it still feels more like home than anywhere else. And as such, it is a place that I am drawn to even as I run away. I've been looking for a way back in, said the prostitute to the comedian. Things are getting too weird out here. There's too much pain and too much fear. So they busted down the prison gates, but no one escaped. Instead, the inmates said, let us make you up a bed. Oh, oh. There's a clerk locked away somewhere that calculates the price of air. Some people like to sell their loves just because they hear the prices up. Everybody's gotta pay the man, but not everyone can afford to pay in cash. Oh, they often pay much more.
You know, as kids, we don't get to choose where we grow up. And if I had my druthers as a 10-year-old, I would have stayed in the Bay Area, in Benicia. But instead, we moved to the desert. And I went to private institutions until my sophomore year of high school, so I really wasn't introduced to most of my lifelong friends until much later in my school career. But, oddly enough, growing up in the desert very much made me who I am today. The prosecutor is much too high, said the leaders on the left and right. We don't like the music anyhow, it's too damn fast and too fucking loud. So they aim the 40 million guns and with a smile they said you better run. Oh, we're gonna count to ten. One, ten. Overtakes us. Come on, love, let us get away before this sickness overtakes us. Come on, love, let us get away before this sickness overtakes us. Come on, love, let us get away before this madness finally does us in. Oh, let us get away. It's funny, I don't really consider myself a desert musician. Even though my roots are there, I'm an LA musician who now happens to live in Austin, Texas. But the idea that you can do what you want if you have the temerity and endurance to pursue it, which is my utmost driving principle, that was definitely born in the desert. Definitely. So that's the episode, a little piece of my history supported by the music I have written. You know, normally I record five completely brand new songs for each episode, but on this episode I use two songs from Get Set Go's brand new album, Juggernaut, because A, they're amazing, and B, I felt like I'd be disrespecting the album versions, considering they're so new, if I were to sit down and record completely new renditions for this episode. So if you dig them, Off at Their Heads and Ride the Tiger, they can be found on Bandcamp. You can buy the whole album right now for $7. But it's pretty crazy to discover that no matter how many layers of the onion you peel back, no matter how deeply a person digs into their own history, there's always new insights to discover. There's always new perspectives, new meanings, new takeaways. So thank you so much for coming along for the ride. I hope you're having as much fun listening as I am telling the story and making the music. And if you want, you can help support this podcast. Just go to patreon.com forward slash get set go. You know, and I and I, I hate to say it, but I am slowly going under. I have a family and I make so little money that it is embarrassing. I'm trying to change that. But I feel like I'm trying to course correct the Titanic with a really, really, really long oar. So hopefully this plea does not fall on deaf ears. A tiny amount of your effort in exchange for my effort goes a very, very long way. I love you all. Be well. Eat your veggies. Live forever.